want to welcome everybody. I want to welcome the folks joining us online. Thanks for being a part of our service. Grab your Bible this morning and open it to the Gospel of Matthew in the 25th chapter, Matthew chapter 25. Open it up and hold it ready there for a moment. I want to mention a couple things to you real quickly. First of all, thank you to everyone who was so generous uh, last weekend. You know, the Bible talks about the giving of our tithes and the giving of our offerings. And offerings are kind of a special beyond the tithe type of a gift. And I put the tip jars out last week and I told you the story about that crack house and that prostitution house next to our church in the Fairfax community, Impact Fairfax. And uh, we, we're going to buy that house for $20,000. Let's raise the money. I think the total right now is a little over $25,000. And so that was great. And I want to encourage you. Yeah, you can celebrate that. <clears throat> and I want to encourage you, if maybe you weren't here last week or you didn't have anything to give last week, that you can still do that. Uh, just... Uh, uh, write a check and uh, on the memo line, just put Impact Fairfax House. And any money that we get over the 20000 purchase price, we'll just set aside to, to use to uh, care for that house and do whatever ends up, uh, we end up doing with that house to, to turn it around. I mean, there, there's a possibility that we can we'll just tear it down. We've not even been inside of it yet. And uh, if that's the case, then we have a big space there next to the church that we'll have lots of opportunities to use. Uh, if we can use it, if it's salvageable, we'll, we'll look into that. But uh, all the monies that will be given will go specifically toward that house. Uh, the second thing I want to uh, mention to you real quickly is that our, our building down in the uh, Old Southside community, which is just south of downtown, our Impact Old Southside building is now open. It's been remodeled. It's a beautiful building. We'll be uh, planning a, a, a grand opening and uh, the opportunity for you to go down there and to see that. But we're getting ready. We've got a big vision for that ministry, and we're going to need a lot of volunteers down there because that building is going to be open throughout the week for all kinds of programs uh, that deal with the neighborhood, with the people in the neighborhood, children's programs. There's a food co-op that we're going to do. We'll have a Sunday night church service there. Uh, and so we need lots of volunteers, lots of volunteers for different shifts throughout the week. And some of those shifts are, are only as long as two hours. And so maybe you've been looking for a way to serve that's a little bit outside the box or maybe that fits into your schedule a little bit better than what we are doing here at our Greenwood campus. And this might be a great opportunity for you. And I want to really promote that. And so I want you just to remember two names. I want you to remember the name Jed Fuller who is our Impact Old Southside pastor, and I want you to remember the name Melissa Brown, who is an assistant down there, Jed Fuller and Melissa Brown. And you can email them, and all you have to do, I wish, I'm sorry I don't have a slide for this, is remember their first initial, their last name, so J. Fuller, and then these words, at mpccministry.com. Melissa Brown, M. Brown, at mpccministry.com. And if you forget all of that, just call the church tomorrow and say, hey, I'd like to more, find more information about serving at Old Southside. All right? All right. Let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 25. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in the gospel of Matthew because two weeks ago we had our annual back-to-school weekend. And then last weekend my brother was in the pulpit because I had another uh, thing on my schedule that was a little bit more important to me in the moment than being at Saturday night church. So... Anyway, we're going to turn our attention back to our verse-by-verse -verse journey through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we are in a section of Matthew's Gospel called the Olivet Discourse. Uh, at Jesus is in the last week of his life. It's been a busy week. In Matthew chapter 23, he's spending uh, time in the temple. He has this tense confrontation with the religious leaders, and it's a difficult time. And as he leaves the temple, he says these words at the end of Matthew chapter 23. He says, look your house is left to you desolate. After he 
is, shares his great sorrow over the fact that the Jews did not receive him as the Messiah. As he's leaving the temple, he says, look, your house, he's talking about the temple, is left to you desolate. And that confuses the disciples because the temple is spectacular and they can't imagine how it could ever be desolate. And so, in the beginning of chapter 24 and verse 1, they call his attention to the temple almost as if to say, Jesus, how can you ever say that this is a building that would one day be desolate? And in Matthew 24, 2, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And that's exactly what happened in A.D. 70 when the Romans came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And so the disciples are really troubled now. And in verse 3 of 24, they come to him and they say, tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And that leads to what we call the Olivet Discourse, which begins in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 4 and goes all the way through Matthew chapter 25. I've told you, it's the second longest recorded sermon of Jesus in the Gospels, and it's the longest answer he ever gave to a question. In verses 4 through 14 of Matthew 24, Jesus shares six signs that will precede his second coming. And then in the remaining part of chapter 24, he basically talks about three things. He talks about what life will be like in the world before his coming. He talks about the certainty of his coming, and he emphasizes the truth that apart from God, no one, everyone say no one, no one knows the day or the time of his coming. No one. In fact, he says that four separate times. If you've got your Bible open to Matthew chapter 25, just look left, at least that's the way it is for me in my Bible, to chapter 24. Look down at verse 36. Of chapter 24, he says, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And then you look at verse 42. He says, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Then there's verse 44. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And then you go down to verse 50, and it's a little bit different because he He's uh, sharing an illustration here, but look at what he says. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware. Four times Jesus says, no one knows the day or the time of my coming. And so, what we're left with in Matthew chapter 24 is this unmistakable message that we need to be prepared for the coming of Christ. However we think that might happen, we need to be prepared for the coming of Christ. And that takes us to Matthew chapter 25, which is where we're going to look today. So if you've got your Bibles open there, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. We're so thankful if you're a guest with us today. We welcome you into our service. We do this uh, pretty much every week. We make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service, and we stand when we read it because we have such great respect for God's Word. I'm going to read Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. This is the parable of the ten virgins. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish one took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. And later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. 
But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask God to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Before we go any further, I want to make sure that I say this right from the beginning. I really believe that the message of this parable is very simple. It's very, very simple. Matthew chapter 24 is anything but simple, but when you turn the page to Matthew chapter 25, everything changes. Some people want to look at this parable like an allegory and make every part of it mystical. Some people want to stretch the application to places that it doesn't deserve to be. Some people just want to try to understand all of the detail and the data, and they get bogged down in those things. But the message of this parable is simple. It's twofold. First, Jesus is coming again. Second, his coming will be sudden, so everyone must be prepared. You'd think that was something the world would understand because the first time Jesus came, the world wasn't ready, even though it should have been. Why do I say that? Well, the prophets had given all the signs of his coming. They said he would be born in Bethlehem, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They said he would be born of a virgin, and Jesus was born of a virgin. They said he would come from the line of David, and Jesus came from the line of David. They said he would have a forerunner who would be like a voice crying out in the wilderness. Jesus had a forerunner. His name was John the Baptist, and he was like a voice crying out in the wilderness. They said he would come to Galilee. Jesus came to Galilee. They said that he would come in great power. Jesus came in great power, and you could go on and on and on, but in the end... In spite of all of that advanced notice, all those things and much more, the world wasn't prepared when Jesus came the first time. In fact, when the apostle John wrote his gospel and the prologue to his gospel in John chapter 1 and verse 11, he writes this about Jesus. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The ones that knew all of that information in advance, they didn't receive him. Well, Jesus certainly doesn't want that to happen again. And so he gives us this parable as a warning because, listen, friends, unlike the first time when Jesus came, when Jesus comes the second time, it will be too late for anyone who's unprepared. That's a strong message of the Scriptures. And so I'll say it again. The theme of this parable is very, very simple. But let's try to understand it on a deeper level this morning by talking about three things. And by the way, time out. I don't know what's going on in your bulletin this morning because that's not my outline, okay? And I'm sure it's my fault at the end of the day, but as I stand here today, I have absolutely no idea what happened there, all right? So just ignore that, okay? And try to find some space to write because I got three points and I don't know what's going on in your bulletin this morning. <laughs> if you'd like to take notes, write down somewhere in your bulletin just the words, the wedding. The wedding, write that next to some number one that you create in your insert. I've told you before that weddings in Jesus' day were very, very different than anything you and I have ever experienced. For example, they were, they were all huge events on some level that involved everyone in the town and everyone in the village where the bride and groom came from. And they were times of great celebration that could be very, very lengthy. In fact, there were three elements to a Jewish wedding in Jesus' day. First, there was the engagement. And this was something that was handled by the father of the bride and the father of the groom pretty much without any involvement of the bride and groom because they were, for the most part, arranged marriages. The second part of a Jewish wedding in Jesus' day was what was called the betrothal. And this was a ceremony where the bride and groom would exchange vows in the presence of their family and their friends. 
And when that happened, the couple was considered to be married. They were legally married. They were married in the eyes of God at the betrothal. But here's the deal. The betrothal could last for a long time. I'm not talking about the ceremony where they exchanged vows. The period of time where they were considered to be in the betrothal stage of the wedding could last for a long time. And there was a reason for that. Because after the betrothal, the groom had the opportunity to go out and establish himself, so to speak, establish himself in his job or in his career or whatever he was going to pursue to make money and establish himself in the sense of finding a home that he could bring his wife to. And so this betrothal period could last for a long time, depending, I guess, upon how uh, motivated the groom was. Now, by the way, it's interesting that it was during the betrothal period of the marriage ceremony that we find Joseph and Mary when Mary found out that she was pregnant with God's son, with Jesus. The third part of the wedding ceremony in Jesus' day was called the wedding banquet. And I know we've talked specifically about this before. The wedding banquet would usually last for an entire week. And again, everyone in the village, everyone in the town, everyone in the community where the bride and the groom were from would be involved because all would be invited. The wedding banquet began when the groom and his groomsmen would come to the bride's house, often at midnight, where she and her bridesmaids would be waiting. And then together they would parade through the streets of the town of the village, letting everyone know that the wedding banquet was about to begin. And because it was done at night, the wedding party would carry lamps or torches to get everyone's attention and to light the way. When the wedding banquet was over, a close friend of the groom, probably the equivalent of a modern-day best man, would take the bride's hand and place it in the groom's hand, and everyone would leave. And for the very first time since it all began, remember, there's the engagement, then there's the betrothal, then there's the week-long wedding banquet. And for the very first time from when it all began, the bride and the groom would be alone together. And they would go and they would consummate the marriage and begin living together in their new home. And that's a quick explanation, friends, of what a Jewish wedding looked like in Jesus' day. And it's important that we understand that because that's the framework for this parable, the parable of the ten virgins. All right, somewhere on your insert there, right down next to a number two, the words, the wedding party. Let's talk about the wedding party. Here's the question. Who did the people in Jesus' parable represent? Well, again, like the overall parable, it's really pretty simple. Let's begin with the bridegroom. The bridegroom represents Jesus. Just like the bridegroom in the parable was going to come and get his bride one day so that the wedding banquet could begin, one day Jesus, the ultimate bridegroom, will come and get his bride, which is the church, for the beginning of the ultimate wedding banquet, which will culminate in a new heaven and a new earth. And just like the bride in Jesus' parable didn't know when the bridegroom was coming, the church today, and remember the church is the body of Christ, followers of Christ, Christ followers all around the world. The bride today doesn't know when the bridegroom will come. We don't know the day or the hour when Jesus will return. What about the bridesmaids? Who are the bridesmaids in Jesus' story? Well, the bridesmaids that are identified first as ten virgins, and by the way, we shouldn't spiritualize that. We shouldn't spiritualize in any way, shape, or form the fact that they're identified as ten virgins. Uh, the word that's used in the original language of the New Testament there for virgins is the Greek word parthenos, and literally it just means marriageable maidens, marriageable maidens. It's just a description of young women who had not yet been married 
And so they had not yet had any kind of sexual relationship with a man. And it's not something we should spiritualize. It's just something that fits the culture of the weddings in Jesus' day. The ten bridesmaids would have been ten young women who were ten marriageable maidens who were virgins. And that's all we need to understand about that. But in this story, those ten bridesmaids, those ten virgins represent people who profess to be Christ followers, followers of Christ, people who've made a personal commitment to Christ, a personal commitment to watchfully wait for the return of Jesus. Now, an interesting thing about the story is that each one of them carried a lamp. In the original language, again, that's the word lampos, which doesn't mean lamp in the sense that we would think of it. We would think of something small. It means torch. I mean, if you've ever been to the Holy Land, and, you'll, and those of you who are going with me in just boy, just around the corner, we're going to be heading to the Holy Land. You're going to see examples of lamps that were used in those days are just basically small clay vessels that you would fill with oil and you have some kind of a wick. I mean, remember when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount was saying in Matthew 5, 14 and 15, he said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. I mean, that's what you think of when you hear the word lamp. That's what comes to my mind, something small that you could put under a bowl. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's, a better word is torch. He's talking about a torch. And so these bridesmaids all had the responsibility of carrying a torch. And it would have been a long wooden pole. And at the end of the long wooden pole, there would be some kind of a mesh apparatus. And in that mesh apparatus, you could soak a cloth in oil and put it in there, and you could light it, and it could be a torch that would illuminate a large area and be bright enough for people to follow. And so these bridesmaids, along with their responsibility of caring for the bride, attending to the bride, also had the responsibility of carrying a torch, so they needed to keep some extra flask or some extra jar of oil with them to make sure that they could always keep their torches lit, that they could keep them lit as long as necessary. And the torches, the torches represent their profession of faith. The torches represent an outward mark of their commitment to Jesus, an outward mark of their commitment to be watchful and waiting and ready for the bridegroom, the ultimate bridegroom, Jesus, when he comes to get his bride, the church. Now, having said all of that, there's one more thing we need to talk about. So write down somewhere in your insert, if you like to take notes, the wedding lessons, the wedding lessons. And I've got four things written down in my notes here, and I'll try to get through them quickly. But there are four things we absolutely need to understand about this parable, which is, again, remember, simple. The meaning of the parable is simple. I've told you over the years many, many times that our default mode as students of the Bible, as people who read the Bible to try to understand it, should always be this, when the normal sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. In other words, most of the time, the Bible means exactly what we think it means. Are there exceptions to that? Yes. But most of the time, when the normal sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. Four things. Number one, initially, these ten virgins... These ten bridesmaids were indistinguishable. 
initially they were indistinguishable. And by, what I mean by that is that they all pretty much look the same. They're all bridesmaids. They all have on wedding garments. They all attend to the bride. They all have torches and on and on and on. But Jesus makes it clear in the parable that they are not all the same. Look back at verses 2 through 4. He said, five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish one took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. They're not the same. And so while they may appear to be indistinguishable on the outside, inwardly they're different. And the difference was the foolish one had their lamps like the wise but no extra oil on the outside, it looked like all of them were prepared for the bridegroom when he came, but it wasn't true. And an interesting thing about this parable is how we understand that oil. In his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, John MacArthur writes and says that in this parable, the oil represents the grace of God, the grace of God which is necessary for salvation. We're saved, the Bible says, by God's grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes and says, For it is by grace you have been saved. He goes on in verse 9 to say, And this is not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For it is by grace you've been saved. We're not saved by our works, we're not saved by our efforts, we're not saved by any physical thing that we could ever do. We're saved solely by the grace of God. And... MacArthur says that in this parable, the oil represents that grace. That grace is God's unmerited favor. It's the gift of God's forgiveness, and it's the gift of God's salvation that he gives to us that we can't ever earn and that we will never, not even our best day, ever earn or deserve, I mean. The Bible makes it clear that there's no salvation apart from the grace of God. You know, this is something similar that we talked about earlier in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. My mind immediately, upon reading this and thinking about this, went to Matthew chapter 22. In fact, hold your place in Matthew 25 and turn back just a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 22. Uh, there's a similarity here because in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus tells another parable, and it's called the parable of the wedding banquet. And this parable of the ten virgins that we're talking about today revolves around a wedding banquet, which, remember, is the third part of a wedding, right? begins with the engagement, followed by the betrothal, culminated by the wedding banquet. Let's just remind ourselves of the parable of the wedding banquet. And Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. And then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off one to his field, another to his business. And then it gets worse. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to the servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners. Invite to the banquet anyone you find. And so the servants went out to the street and gathered all the people they could find. Note this, both good and bad. Which category do you think you'd be in? I'm telling you right now, I'd be in the bad, and so would you. Because on our own, you know what, at the end of the day, that's what we are, because we're all sinners. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. There wasn't much reaction to that, so don't write me any notes after the service is over, okay? 
But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are invited, but few are chosen. So in a wedding banquet in Jesus' day, it was absolutely required that everyone wore their best clothes, what would be called their wedding clothes. You didn't come to a wedding shabbily dressed because it was such a big and important celebration. The king goes into the wedding banquet and he sees a person there that's just dressed in ordinary average maybe even shabby clothes, and he's surprised, and he goes up to him, and this is not sarcasm or anything tongue-in-cheek. He looks at the man, and he genuinely says, friend. It's, in the original language, it's a term of affection, friend. How did you get in here dressed like that? Because what that means is that there was a man at the wedding banquet who was trying to be a part of what was going on on his own terms, in ancient days, you either, even if you didn't have wedding clothes, nice clothes, it was the responsibility of the one who was throwing the wedding, the father of the bride, for example, it was his responsibility to provide wedding clothes for you. And so for someone to show up at a wedding banquet dressed in shabby clothes means two things. Number one, I didn't care enough to wear my best clothes. Or number two, I didn't care enough to wear the clothes you gave me. And all that means is that that was somebody trying to be a part of the wedding celebration on his own terms. And it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Salvation only comes on God's terms, and that's by the grace of God. When we come to the end of ourselves, we recognize our own sin and our own helplessness and our own helplessness, and we say, God, save me. That's the only way that it works according to the Scriptures. And so, Jesus is using this parable, he's using this story to tell us that the only way you can meet the ultimate bridegroom or the only way that you can be a part of the ultimate wedding banquet is through the grace of God, not on your own, not the way you try to do it on your own. And so one of the most important points of the parable is that it it might look like someone is a, is a follower of Christ. It might look some, like someone is genuine in their profession of faith, but not everyone is. And this is a consistent message with Jesus all throughout the Scriptures. He, this is a recurrent theme in Jesus' teaching. In fact, if we had the time, we could go back through the Gospel of Matthew where we've been to this point, and we could see this over and over again. We'd go all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says in Matthew 7 and verse 21, He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will... Enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. What's the will of the Father in heaven? The will of the Father in heaven is that all of us, again, at some point come to the end of ourselves and we say, I need God to save me by his grace because I can't do it on my own. Jesus tells all these parables. A farmer goes out to sow seed one day, and he sows the seed, and it falls on four different kinds of ground. The first is the path, and the birds come, and they, they get it, and they, they, they eat it, and they carry it away. But then the rest of the seed falls on three different kinds of soil, soil that's shallow, soil that's filled with weeds, and soil that's good soil. And in the end, even though it looked like all of the seeds fell into the soil and all of the seeds were good to go, in the end, there was only one soil that produced any real growth, and that was the good soil. And story after story like that. This is a recurrent theme. Now, this is not what anybody wants to hear today in a culture of tolerance and inclusiveness where we say, it doesn't really matter what you believe. All roads lead to heaven. All roads lead to God, just as long as you're sincere. 
And I know, I know and I love people who believe that way. But that's not what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus says. And that's a strong message of the parable. It's not what we look like on the outside. It's what's going on on the inside. It's the understanding the commitment of our hearts. Write down next to number two, or uh, write down a number two for a second lesson. Jesus makes it clear there will be a time of waiting for the bridegroom. Back in Matthew 25, 5, Jesus says the bridegroom was a long time in coming. Now, I don't know how much time passed between the betrothal and the arrival of the bridegroom, which signaled the beginning of the wedding banquet, but there was a time of waiting. And I think the main thing Jesus is trying to communicate to us here is that while we wait for Jesus' coming, life goes on. You notice in the story it says that while the bridesmaids were waiting for the groom to come to get his bride, they got tired and they fell asleep, which is absolutely normal and natural, right? It's absolutely normal. Now, sleep is a natural and normal part of life. The only place where sleeping is really bad is in church. That's it. And God sees you. And so do I, by the way. But it's a natural part of life. Falling asleep is a natural, normal part of life. And so while all these ten bridesmaids fell asleep, five of them were prepared for the bridegroom's coming, but five of them were not. You know, life goes on. While we wait for Jesus, life goes on. And so we eat, we drink, we fall asleep, we take care of the details of life, we invest ourselves on a certain level in the reality of what it takes to live life in this world. But here's the lesson because as followers of Christ, we know that one day he will come, it's not the details of life that has our first affection. It's not the details of life, the eating, the drinking, the sleeping, the investing of ourselves in the world on some level just to be able to live our lives, that is our first priority. In our hearts, Jesus is our first priority, waiting and being prepared for his return. That's our first priority. All right, the third lesson is this. There will be a time when it's too late. I'm just going to read back from verse 6 in the parable. At midnight, the cry rang out. How many of you remember the old gospel song, At the Midnight Cry? That's where this comes from. At midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went with him or went, went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. And everybody look at me for a moment. Does that really require any explanation? Five of the Bridesmaids, five of the virgins weren't prepared when the bridegroom came, and because of that, they weren't allowed in the wedding banquet. They said, Lord, Lord, let us in. Remember what Jesus said? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. That's Matthew 7, 21. There's no question, friends, that we're living in a day of grace, that we're living in a time where God's grace can save anyone but the day of grace won't last forever. How does that make you feel about your loved ones and your friends and your coworkers who are a long way from God? How about your one life? Do you have a one life? What a great story we saw before the message. We should feel a sense of urgency about this as Christians. And finally, number four, 
And Brian and Phil and Heidi and the group can come and we're going to have one last song. At the end of the day, you are responsible for you. When the bridegroom came and all the bridesmaids, the virgins woke up and the five realized they didn't have enough oil, they said, give us some of your oil. And the bridesmaids, the virgins who were prepared said, no, then there won't be enough for both of us. Listen, you can't, you can't drag someone to heaven with you. you. Nobody does that. You can't get to heaven. You can't enter into the wedding banquet, the ultimate wedding banquet on the shoulders of someone else. At the end of the day, you're responsible for you. And that's important because I know a lot of people who think, well, you know, I had Christian parents. I grew up in a Christian home, and that's wonderful. I'm glad that happened. But it's not your mom and dad's faith that are going to get you to heaven. You're responsible for you. And I know people say, well, when I was young, I went to this church, and they had this program, and I went to these classes, and I memorized these things, and we had a ceremony at the end, and I think everything is good. And, you know, maybe it is, but maybe it isn't, because it's not classes and memorizations and a ceremony that's going to get you into heaven. It's what's going on in your heart. And so the question really is, as you sit here this morning listening to me, as you watch me, wherever you might be this morning, do you honestly, genuinely have the assurance of salvation in your heart? You know for sure that if you died today, you'd go to heaven because of your personal faith that opened the door to the grace of God in your life. That is not a question to be dismissed, one that we should take very seriously. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Do you have that assurance?